Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook. I'm the Senior Administrator at the Hendricks Center. And today we're going to be talking about what happens when we die. I'm joined today by some distinguished fellows, some distinguished gentlemen. We have uh, Gary Habermas, who's the distinguished, literally, research professor of apologetics and philosophy at Liberty University. Uh, we have um, Daniel Hill, who's the assistant professor at the- of theological studies at DTS. And we also have Mikel Del Rosario here, who's the project manager for cultural engagement at the Hendricks Center. So I'm thrilled to have you gentlemen with us today. And we're excited to be talking about, um, I guess, kind of a morbid topic, but uh, something that I think a lot of people really wonder about and becomes really practical when they're facing the reality of losing someone in their life. Um, And just, you know, and when you're even thinking about your own mortality, there are really they're important things that you want to think about. So today we're going to be talking about what happens when we die. Um, so I think to get us started, we will, uh, I'm going to pitch a question to uh, Gary and Mikkel about um, what passages are there that give us kind of an insight or that we should have in mind when we're thinking about what we might experience after death. What is it in the Bible that kind of gives us clues. Obviously, there's mystery, um, but we we do know some things, or it seems like there are some things in Scripture. So, Gary, you want to start us off by giving us some passages we should keep in mind as we're thinking through these things? And we would, since we're talking at the point of death, we are talking about the intermediate state, right? Uh, yeah, we could start there, yeah. I mean, because that's the toughest in terms of passages. Second Corinthians okay. chapter 5 is the classic uh, comment, and Paul goes on for about 10 verses there. And there's some little snippets other places. For example, Jesus is what some people think is a parable, some people think is a real case. In Luke 16, about the rich man Lazarus, not Jesus' friend, but the poor man Lazarus is another one. And there are a few other real brief snippets, but there's some things in Revelation, there's one or two passages in Hebrews, but for the most part, I think most people get their information from Second Corinthians chapter 5. That's my guess, anyway, is to where they go on that. Okay, Mikkel, did you have any other passages you wanted to add? Well, I think the Second Corinthians 5 passage really is the, the one, the go-to one, where where Paul says, you know, when we're not in the body, then we're with the Lord, and that is part of our, our Christian hope. Um, in Second Corinthians 11, also, we have this peculiar situation where Paul says he was caught up to the third heaven. He's not sure if he was in the body or outside the body. That some people have kind of linked to um, reports of near-death experiences. When uh, the first martyr, Stephen, was killed, he says he saw Jesus standing at the right hand, of the father right before he was killed. And so there are some things like that, but again, they're not that specific. And the first Corinthians or the second Corinthians five really is the go-to. Okay. So um, Gary, you did just uh, like bring in the concept of an intermediate state. Um, So are there, and, and you said, you know, we're talking about this, right? And so are there different states of life after death? Uh, Dr. Hill or Daniel, (laughs) sorry. Um, Would you like to address that first? And then we can kind of talk about that if there are different opinions 
on if there are different states of life after death, what just kind of paint the picture. So a person dies and from what we know in scripture and theological conversation and what Christians have historically believed, what do we believe happens after that? Yeah. So it's some of the answer to that question is going to depend on how you articulate the composition of the human person. So if you believe that soul, that people are in soul bodies and embodied souls, so a composite of body and soul, then you will fall into one camp. And if you think, the human person is uh, material, you'll fall on a different side. Um, but I think the key stages or states that I would point out uh, first, there's what we call the intermediate state. So the post death, what's going on? Does the, the human subject uh, in, in some sense continue to exist? Uh, um, and then there's this, for however long that lasts, uh, there's this time of resurrection where the human subject is now reintegrated. So if you believe that human beings are body and soul, the soul is reunited with the body. If you believe that human creatures are just uh, material, then they're uh, probably recreated or their matter is gathered from all the places it's been. Uh, there was an argument in the early church about that. And then there is the, the, the Christian story doesn't end with just resurrection and glorification. Uh, where our bodies are transfigured, but we then enter into the Lord's rest, uh, and um, and we are forever and always with the Lord. Okay, which sounds awesome. Uh, <laughs> so, so let's first talk. I think it would be helpful for all of us to first talk about the intermediate state, just to kind of go through those different those different states. So, Dr. Uh, Gary, what different approaches are there to the intermediate? Ugh, that, for some reason, I've been trying practicing it all afternoon, and my tongue just won't do intermediary, and I don't know why, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, well, what different approaches are there, and or interpretations? How do how do Christians understand that state? The the majority view among researchers, you know, theologians, New Testament scholars, and others, is that the intermediate state is disembodied. There is a minor view that the, dis- that the intermediate state is embodied, but not with the final uh, embodiment. In other words, you have something that could be called, you know, kind of like a, you know, body light, L-I-T-E, Uh, a light body, but by far the majority view is that their intermediate state is disembodied. And, and Mikkel made that reference to uh, Paul having his experience Mm -hmm. in second Corinthians, whether out of the body or in the body, I know not which he says that more than once. That's an interesting reference because it seemed like, well, first of all, things were happening so fast and so glorious. He probably wasn't paying attention to what my body's like, but Later, he wasn't able to answer that question. So it's a toughie. But I do think by far the majority view is that the intermediate state is uh, disembodied. What, what Somebody will bring this up sooner or later. What um, Tom Wright calls life after, life after death. And it's the second one there. Life after is the final state. Life after, life after death is the second one. And it's often said that the intermediate state is heaven 
and the final state is a revivified earth. But that's another that's another discussion. Okay, so what do we, um, and Daniel, I think we'll direct this toward you. What do we, how do we understand heaven? So it's uh, like Gary's saying, it's the vast majority of people believe that that is a disembodied state. Um, one, that probably needs to be addressed just because, you know, God created us with bodies and spirits or, you know, souls. And, and so is that a, it, 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 is that a good thing? Is that ultimately what it's supposed to be? So we can talk about that. But also, um, what do we mean by heaven? What, you know, what is going on there? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, heaven is, I, I guess, if I were to give a pithy response, uh, it would be the place where God is, even though uh, we normally don't, well, God, I would, I would argue God isn't extended in space time, but heaven would be the place where the angels are engaging in the worship of God. Uh, you get language in the book of Hebrews of like this heavenly tabernacle. Uh, and so some theologians will say that there's a heavenly liturgy. That's what uh, Eastern Orthodox theologians will make that argument. And that the, then the life of the church is supposed to mirror that. Um, but yeah, so I would say it's a, a place, but not a place in, in terms of how we typically understand places. Uh, because typically we think of places as, that which material reality occupies where our bodies can be <laughs> right. our bodies yeah. can be extended and it wouldn't yeah. be it wouldn't be that um but I, we're kind of limited linguistically to say no it's a space but not that kind of space uh, it's the heavenly kind of space kimberly if i can make a real quick comment i may have absolutely been, i may have been confusing to what i said uh it's tom wright who says life after life after death and the second one is the intermediate state and he says he calls the intermediate state heaven because he and okay. a growing number of other people, Ben Witherington, many others, think that e eternity is on a recreated earth and that that's the most physical of the two states. For those who think that eternal life is up, you know, for lack of a better phrase, up with God and the angels, that might be what they call heaven. So depending on which one you call heaven depends on whether you think the final state is a revivified earth or whether you think it's heavenly. So pursuing that, what, what is it that um, you're saying Tom Wright and Ben Witherington, and they're, they're making the, um, the case for a recreated earth. Where, where are they getting that scripturally, interpretationally? How are they coming to that conclusion? Well, Second Peter, Second Peter three, um, into Revelation, you know what is the what is what is the city that is coming down? Of course, the city is uh, suspended in air, so it's a little bit different. But I'm just saying, people who think that the disembodied state is called heaven, mm -hmm. they have to say that that is the intermediate state. A lot of people okay. believe that the heaven is the re-embodied state. Depends is the ultimate, do, yes. Depends on what you do with the earth versus heaven final state question. That no, you know what? Yeah, that's fair. That's a fair clarification. Thank you, because that's true. Yeah, um, I, I had been thinking of heaven as the intermediary state, but you're right, right to be making the clarification that some people would understand that to be, you know, the final kingdom and all of that. Um, yeah, you're right. Thank you for that. Okay, so there's this term that kind of floats around sometimes um, that's like soul sleep. 
Gary, can you address that? What is that? Is it, is it the intermediary state? What are the, what are the ways that people can kind of land in believing in the idea of soul sleep yeah. instead of heaven? Yeah, that, that's crazy. And just, just today, I, before this broadcast, I just had a discussion with concerning the, uh, one of our own PhDs who's gotten his degree and he's, at, uh, and he's teaching, but he holds the rec what's called reconstitutionalism, which is a type of soul sleep. And um, I, I just... I just think that's out. I, I also I had an interview a couple of months ago with a Seventh Day Adventist uh, professor, um, and they have that view. They ask us not to bring it up on the air, but uh, that was kind of interesting. A lot of people believe that soul sleep can take either the 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 view that we are sort of in suspended animation until God raises our bodies. And then we go into the final state because there is no intermediate state. Or for the unbeliever, that's the place that you similarly don't remember anything at death, but you remember you remember nothing any other time. For the naturalist, for the Christian, the unbeliever also is in an intermediate state, but he's suffering during that time, not with the Lord, not with the Christians. But then later he's judged re-embodied, not glorified, but re-embodied, and goes to what is typically called hell, but that's switching a lot of theological definitions. I, and you mentioned near-death experiences earlier. I think near-death experiences are one of the, the biggest refutations to any kind of soul sleep view. Hmm. Okay. There are some folks in, like Martin Luther held to soul mm -hmm. sleep, uh, Athenagoras of Athens, uh, Tatian, John Milton. Um, this, that, I mean, that doesn't make it right or wrong, but uh, yeah, there, there, that has been a view. I mean, John Calvin writes a, uh, <laughs> a screed against it that, um, like, Martin Bucer didn't want him to publish, and some of his other friends, because of like the Anabaptists were holding to a, a form of soul sleep during his time. So, what is it about soul sleep that so those people who do hold it? hold to it um and and is it the what you were talking about daniel is it the um when you know the i guess at the final resurrection or that that everything is reconstituted is that what you were referencing earlier like all of the matter of the body is reconstituted oh, no i was thinking of a physicalist or a hylomorphic dualist so if for physicalist you just are your body uh and there are christian physicalists so when you die, mm -hmm. your body becomes a corpse. There's nothing, gotcha. there, there's no you anymore. Okay. And, and let's say an alligator eats your body. Well, you've got to get those pieces back. Um, gotcha. I think if I were to give this is, so that's not my view. Soul sleep isn't my view. But if I were to give a kind of a charitable reading, I would say you could read Job's, you know, you could read the book of Job and Job is really troubled by the, the, the fact that he doesn't isn't going to have any activity after his death. Um, you hear in the book of in the Psalms and uh, in some of the prophets that they say this idea that there's no like I can't worship you in in death. Like if I die, that's kind of the end uh, of of me. And so I think that you could read that if you if you wanted to kind of paint the most charitable view of this, and then get you get to first. 
1 Thessalonians 4, and Paul says, those who die are asleep. It's like, well, when I'm sleeping, I don't, I mean, I'm, aside from kicking and sometimes talking, I don't engage in a lot of activity. And so maybe that's kind of a gloss of what Paul means. He's importing some wisdom literature. Uh, so, okay. yeah, that would be, I guess, my chart, how I'd try and present it uh, charitably. Okay. And Gary, why might, why might, based on those passages that Daniel just gave us, why might those who believe in soul sleep want that to be true rather than, is it just because of how they're reading the passages or is it, is there something that they're really like defending or, or why, why might they want that to be true versus some kind of heaven disembodied state with the Lord? Well, they could be, they could be defending an ecclesiastical or theological statement of faith that they want to be faithful to so that they don't get, you know, burned at the stake or kicked out of the school they're teaching at or whatever. It could be that, but I don't know anybody, I don't know why anybody would prefer any kind of sleep view, and there are several, versus a conscious presence with the Lord. In Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And in Philippians chapter 1, um, an excellent passage in Philippians chapter 1, 21, and, this, and then to 23, he says he prefers to die and be with Christ. You wouldn't prefer to die to sleep and not know anything. But Paul says he prefers to die because it's far better. And then he says, and by the way, in the Greek there, in uh, Philippians 1, uh, Paul says, to, to die and be with the Lord is, you could even read, sometimes translations translate the Greek as, it is better, comma, far better. It's an emphatic statement of a positive fact. So even the intermediate, the, where Paul would go when he dies, or when Paul's addressing the general subject in Second Corinthians 5, it's always with the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. I can't think of anything that would be better except the re-embodied final state, which is also with the Lord, but you get your body back. Well, by the way, the reconstitutionalists, the guys who think you get your body back, they've got to deal with a, a tremendous scientific and philosophical question, and that is, how do you know that the you that comes back is the you that dies? How come it's not a, how do you know it's not a similar pattern? We can do a Xerox of a letter, but the Xerox is not the same as the letter, and sometimes you can see differences in the paper. They're different things. And so, I don't know. I would want to live with the Lord. And number two, be sure it's me living at the end. I just think, <laughs> and I think both the intermediate state followed by the final state is by far the more preferable. Okay, and, and, and Daniel? Add, yeah, I would just add to what uh, Gary was saying and that you still have the same question of, so if this soul is sleeping, where is it sleeping? It's still, so you still have the, the dualist kind of problems and then for the early church, and they were, when they were trying to flesh out some of the questions of what happens when you die, it's like, well, let's say I get eaten by that alligator, and then Mikhail has fried alligator for, like, so now some of my matter is a part of him, and not to mention the fact that my cells are dying all the time. Um, and so you've got this, where do I end and someone else begins? And a lot of times uh, in the literature, in contemporary times, like, well, God is omnipotent, so he can do it. And... I don't, for me, that's not personally the most satisfying kind of route to say, well, God can do anything, because then 
I can just kind of, all right, that's why my view is correct because God can do anything. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. Fascinating. Okay. So, but what I'm hearing from, from both of you is that by far the majority view is that the intermediary state uh, would be some type of disembodied um, existence in heaven with the Lord. Um, and that's what we mean by heaven it, with it, disembodied existence with the Lord. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Paul, okay. Paul says, Paul says twice, I'm still groaning in that state. It's wonderful, but I'm still groaning because I want to be re-embodied. And you know, of course, for any Jew, for the mm-hmm. majority, Paul was a Pharisee and the majority Pharisee view was resurrection of the body. So Paul, of course, wants his whole self and not a disembodied self. It's still better though, because you're with the Lord. So he'd still rather be with the, so it's earth then better disembodied with the Lord, best of all, re-embodied with the Lord. Mm-hmm. But there's still, yeah, thank you for bringing up, that's actually where I was headed, was, but there's still a sense of, um, of yeah, dis- discomfort, groaning, uh, that it's still not all right. Like, this is not how it was made to be. And so it's not just that you're up on a cloud with the Lord and, you know, that little pudgy angels strumming a harp and it's all good. And that's what the rest of eternity is. That's not what it is. It's, it's a disembodied existence. You are with the Lord, but there's still more to happen. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, because I want to go back to what you were talking about, Gary, with disembodied, um, not disembodied, uh, with near death experiences. This episode is brought to you by the truce podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. And Mikkel, I just want to throw this over to you real quick. Um, can you just give us, and Mikkel actually uh, wrote a master's level, was it master's level, Mikkel? Master's yeah. level paper on near-death experiences um, and has interacted with Gary on this on a couple occasions as well. And so, um, Mikkel, can you just talk to us briefly about what do we mean when we're talking about near-death experiences? And for those people who might be a little bit more reticent to believe such accounts because of some books that have come out or things like that. Like how, how do we think through them? Should they be understood legitimately? Just how should, what are they and how should we approach them as we try to think through what they are? Sure. Well, simply uh, a near death experience. Sometimes people think, you know, I was hiking in the mountains and I, my foot slipped and I almost died. So I had a near death experience. Um, but that's not what that means in, in the literature. So a near death experience is a certain kind of out of body experience where somebody will say that their soul left their body and it's an involuntary one. Some people will try to induce this thing and that gets into astral projection and such. But a near-death experience is where somebody's not looking for it, they come close to death, and they uh, report coming out of their body. So there's, uh, 
what is just, you know, it looks like somebody's dead, a kind of clinical death. And then you have brain death where you're flat EEG. And then later, uh, you know, where the kind of death that nobody comes back from, that's the third kind of death. But somewhere where they're near that, that point, um, they might report seeing a bright light, you know, coming out of their body through their head, seeing a bright light, experiencing peace and things like this. So these kinds of experiences, somebody says I died and, you know, I saw my grandma and grandpa and then I got sucked back into my body and I was in a world of pain and I just saw the light, you know, on, on the, uh, in the hospital there. We can't really verify that. And so it's hard to really give uh, credence to that kind of story. Certainly they had some kind of an experience, but what that means, I don't know. But there are evidential cases that Gary can certainly talk about uh, that help us see, you know what, there might be something to this because if people can have reports about things that aren't just in their head or just in their, uh, in their private mental state, we can actually check up on those. So Gary, why don't you uh, help us think about those? Well, with, with near-death experiences, <clears throat> the evidential ones are almost always 90-some percent maybe more, 90, I mean, high 90s, but near-death experiences are frequently reveal characteristics about this world. An evidential near-death experience is almost always this worldly. I had a debate with a fellow just recently published in a Blackwell's, uh, a major secular publisher, and I divided evidential near-death experiences into five categories. Now, I'm not going to give a lecture on those, but there are so many of them. There are over 300 evidential near-death experiences. A recent book by medical doctors from articles taken out of medical journals is that in North America alone, there are up to 21 million near-death experiencers. But of those, a very small number, over 300 now are evidenced. And they may see something. It's got to be on earth for you to, uh, you know, evidence it for the most part. Um, this is not one, but I'll just make, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll make one up. What if you have a near-death experience, you you fall down on the ground, no one knows what's wrong, they call 911 on campus and the people run over, and they know that happened at this time, and they know they got you straightened out 45 minutes later. But during that 45 minutes, there was a car accident on campus and there's no windows in the room that you wouldn't make a difference. You were out cold. But let's say um, you later say, I saw that red car hit that green car, and I could not believe the green car did not stop at the stop line like it was supposed to, and it got plowed, and it's a good thing no one died. Well, I know when you went down, and I know when you were revived, and I can get a campus police report about when it happened and when it was, old, when it was taken care of. And I could, I could potentially be correct on seeing that, but I shouldn't be watching it if I was out. And many of these near-death experiences, the evidential ones, are done with flat, no measurable brain waves or no measurable heart waves. They have that combination, um, flat brain or heart, not bottom line, but as far as the machines tell us, according to what the machines say, as far as we know from the condition you're in, like you had uh, a um, cardiac arrest with ventricular fibrillation, that kind, your heart stops. 15 seconds later, on average, your brain stops. So if you're explaining something two minutes later, 
it's in a highly evidential state because theoretically your heart and brain are not working. And there are dozens in that category. So there's some pretty good evidence that something's going on. Now, when the guy says, I went away to heaven, blah, 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 I don't think you can put much stock in that at all because you're not going to get evidence. It doesn't have evidence. By the way, just for the record, 21% approximately of near-death experiences are hell cases or what they call distressed cases. But I don't think any of those are trustworthy because they're out there and I have no evidence for saying out there. How do you know you're in hell? No evidence. Okay, well, I got your testimony. Thanks for that. But no evidence. Mm -hmm. The evidential ones, though, say you're conscious. That's what they show. And you go, well, yeah, but that could be for minutes. But some of them go for hours. And there's another kind that would take you years. That would take some explaining. But it would go way past the time for, for soul sleepers. That's why I say it's uh, the empirical data here at medical journals is really tough on soul sleep of any form. Because these near-death evidential near-death experiences are demonstrating that that there is a disembodied state and they're and that they're conscious. Is that what you're saying? That's how it presents a big problem for the soul sleepers. Yeah, and not only okay. they say they were conscious. They'll say it was the most real thing that ever happened to me in my life. I am more real there than I am now back in the hospital room. And as Mikel said, back in pain again, they wish they could go back there and stay. And many times when they're brought to, they're slapping the doctor's arms and pushing his face and they want to stay. And the doctors are beating on their chest and bringing them back. Hmm. They don't like that. So many so, of these things are fascinating. Like when it comes to like blind people who report things that they can see that they you know, when they were, when they were uh, in their body, they couldn't see it because they're blind. And during the yeah. operation, they're reporting like the kinds of tools that are being used and procedures. And it's, it's just amazing stuff. Unfortunately, the, the, blind, the blind ones are good, but the blind ones don't have super good evidential cases. There's some good evidential cases. But what's funny is, like you said, Mikel, the, they only saw something while they were in their near-death state. They did not see before or after, and they're still blind to this day. So what about those um, near-death experiences, uh, or uh, really not what about them? Are there near-death experiences from people from other religions? Is this just a Christian thing? Um, Mikhail, would you like to speak to that? Because then, you know, what are they experiencing, and how do we make that work with what we're saying about the intermediary state? Yeah, there are many people who are not Christians who have reported near-death experiences. And what it tells us is it tells us that the reports, well, first of all, we have to make a distinction between the experience that somebody's having. They could have a genuine experience and the interpretation of that experience. So, for example, I could have a really vivid dream where I was flying over campus and I felt like I was flying. It was a real experience. But the reality is, objectively, I was just lying in my bed all night. So, somebody whether they're, they're conditioned by their culture to see uh, Jesus or identify the light as God, or if they're seeing Hindu figures because of their culture, we can't really adjudicate what's going on there because, again, it's just private mental states. But what we can say is somebody had um, an actual experience, but what they're telling you says a lot more about them and their interpretation than the experience they're having, especially if there's no evidential handles for it. Another thing to say is for Christians, or for rather for non-Christians who don't talk about judgment, they don't talk about um, anything that we might 
imagine somebody who's not a Christian would face in the afterlife. These people, if they're talking to you, they're still alive and they haven't actually died in the sense that, you know, they haven't hit that, that irreversible uh, thing where you don't come back from it. And so people have actually become Christians after having um, an experience like that. And their eternal state, um, you, can, you can't tell what their eternal state is from uh, what they report experiencing in a near-death scenario. So if I'm understanding this right, the, the near-death experiences might be helpful in demonstrating the, a, a reality of a disembodied spirit and, and kind of proving, disembodied soul, proving that perhaps that it does exist, that that is a, that is a reality. Um, and if we're talking about unbelievers, it would be the same for both Christians and unchristians because the un because you know you haven't hit the point of death and so there's there's no. I guess I'm trying to I'm trying to jive what you you all are saying with you know Gary what what you were saying about you know it was the realest thing that they experienced and they didn't want to come you know they didn't want to come back. Um, so how how do we think through that? As Christians who typically think you know if you're an unbeliever and you die then you're going to feel bad things, you know, to put it very simply. Gary, would you like to address that for us? Well, McKell did a very good job. He said, let's, let's just remember, they don't have to go, unbelievers don't have to go whipping away to, to hell or some bad place because they're not, this is not a Hebrews 9.27 place. This isn't appointed under men once to die and after that the judgment. They're called near-death experiences for a reason. And you might say, well, what about those you were talking about with flat brain, flat heart? Well, they could maybe were actually dead for 30 minutes, but on both sides of it, they were brought back. So even the, that small death state in the middle was part of a larger near-death state. And when Mikkel said people trust Christ, I just got a new testimony this week of a guy who trusted Christ. He saw heaven and hell. And his experience, he became a believer in the experience. Now, sometimes people go, oh, no, that's a second chance. There's no, that, that can't be true biblically. Well, first of all, the guy is not irreversibly dead. And we, you know, we don't object when someone has a bad car accident and sees their life flash before them, and, and that shapes them up, and they become a believer. A near death is a, is a type of experience that brings a lot of people to Christ. It's like a car accident might straighten a person out. So... I mean, we're talking second chance here, but I, I do agree with Mikkel, his comment, that evidence is almost always on this worldly stuff. It's the car accident. It's other things. Heavenly things, I tell students, a lot of people, times people don't want to believe in DEs, Christians, because they think they're going to mm -hmm. get in there that a Hindu says he's going to heaven because an angel or something told them that. And I'm trying to tell my students that is no different then you're living next door to a Hindu fellow and him telling you he thinks he's going to go to a good place when he dies. That's his testimony. And you oh no, but he was in heaven. No, he was. I mean, you know, no, he has no evidence that he was anywhere. Now, he probably was conscious somewhere, but I don't know that he was in heaven. I had no evidence to believe that an angel told him anything. You go into the hell cases, hell cases too. I don't have any evidence that those people were sent there, so I cannot vouch for where they are when they're in the heavenly one. But in the earthly one, we have ways to be able to check on reports in the real world. And like I said, we have over 300 of them. 
Mm-hmm. And it might be helpful to differentiate uh, like cessation of biological functions from what we might call like death as death, uh, where in the second category, like I would say that's a theological category where the, uh, the triune God through the person of spirit is no longer communicating uh, provident, the blessings of providence to you uh, so that your body and soul remain integrated. Whereas like at any point, someone could have their heart cease to function and they still be alive. We get, I mean, happened to my father a couple of years ago and surgeons come in, they might give you a new heart. They might give you a, something to replace it. Um, and so I think you can have kind of aspects of the human body cease to function. Uh, but until, uh, until those, the, the body and soul have been, uh, separated to the point of where reintegra- reintegration is resurrection. I would, I would, I would want to just make a little bit of a distinction. That could just be me, but I think that might be a helpful way. So the, on that account, like someone's like part of their brain could die and cease to function and them not be dead. Um, Kim, the second part of your question I didn't actually answer is what can we what can we make of near-death experiences? I think we shouldn't make too much of them. I think they're powerful, but I think you can't adjudicate between which worldview is true, which religion is true based solely on near-death experiences. But what it can help us to do is to show that if the human consciousness can survive at least the first few moments of, uh, of death, that you can survive the death of your physical body, that it seems to say that naturalism can't fully explain what we experience as human beings. And at least naturalism um, has no, no explanation for that. And so you have to be open to the idea of God and the afterlife. That's exactly Daniel, right. Yeah, Daniel, the, you, I tell, oh, go I, ahead. I, one line. I, I tell people, the losers in all this, Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Jews and Christians can stand side by side and say there's consciousness after death. But the losers are the naturalists, the physicalists. The, the, all, I mean, total physicalists, not the Christian physicalists, because they don't have a, you know, it's not over for them. Now they got something to fear. So, so that actually so, uh, Daniel, that actually, uh, Gary, you just brought up the Christian physicalists. I was going to return because, Daniel, you brought them up a little bit earlier. I was going to ask how near-death experiences, in your opinion, might, um, how, how do Christian physicalists address near-death experiences? Do they, is it a problem for them? What is the relationship between those two approaches? Yeah, so I, I'm not a, terribly familiar with how a non-reductive, full, full, it's <laughs> real specific, world, <laughs> non-reductive Christian physicalist. So they're saying the body's not just reducible, it's not a machine. Uh, you might have something, uh, some, there is something that you do have like a mental life or uh, subjectivity, um, but that is all explainable through causal processes and those causal processes being neurological chiefly. And so I think that they might be inclined to say, if that's not enough qualifications, I don't know what it is. I think that they <laughs> might be inclined, um, that they might say that this is not something that's actually happening, but it's like you're, so to, to go off the categories Mikkel gave us, you are certainly having this experience or you are certainly saying that you're having this experience, but it's not indicative of what is actually 
um, is actually going on. So to use the car accident example, there's, I can't think of a way where if I am purely materiality, I could see something a couple blocks. I could, you know, if that car accident's on the other side of a building, I wouldn't be able to see it, let alone when my biological life has ceased to function. And so I don't think that they'd have a way for uh, accounting for that. Um, more to the point, there's also the question of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where we, we don't say that Jesus ceases to exist for three days and then uh, comes back. Um, there's the person, and, and it's not a copy of the person who died either. Mm. Uh, it's the same, it's the same uh, subject. Mm. So that would be another evidence for the um, intermediary state, the heaven interpretation. Yes, when Gary. Jesus said today, when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. The fact that Jesus was conscious after death, the fact that Paul talks about being present with the Lord, both in Second Corinthians 5 and Philippians chapter 1, to me goes along with all this other data that argues against any kind of permanent sleep of the body or the soul sleep part of the body. I think I think there's mounting data that say those views are incorrect and we need an inner body. We need an intermediate state followed by a final state. Oh, so thank you. That was right where I was going because we had, um, we've talked a lot and that's what we wanted to talk, mainly talk about was the intermediary state because I think that's one of the places that people are very confused about. There's a lot of different types of teach, teaching about it clearly as we've been discussing it for some time. And so um, we wanted to talk that, but I also do want us to just at least touch on, so we talked about um, there's an intermediary state uh, upon death, and then there will be the final resurrection. And then, um, Daniel, you pointed out that the final resurrection isn't even the end, that there's, you know, at rest with God and eternal life with God. Um, so, Daniel, would you want to just tell us real quick what happens at the final resurrection from what we understand in Scripture um, and and probably final resurrection in the in the judgment. What does that look like? Is it a giant TV screen where all of your sins get shown to everybody because that's what my youth pastor told me? And so I would like you to address that and um, just kind of give us an idea of what that might look like. Yeah, there seems to be a, a couple passages um, in the epistles of Paul where he talks about this. Everyone will give an account for their deeds, uh, both in and uh, done in the body, and. So I think that might be where the youth pastor, uh, there's some video, uh, that really popular Christian video, a movie that came out that kind of had that. I think it actually was a TV screen. Um, and so there, there seems to be some, uh, reckoning is, is too heavy of a, loaded of a word, but some uh, dis- accounting. Um, so here are, uh, where, where, where we give an account to God for what we have and have not done uh, I think the important thing that I would want to, the way I would challenge that view that this TV screen of uh, viewing kind of all your sins is it, it misrepresents, in my opinion, the character of the Father. Uh, so in, we, in t- a lot of Christian circles, Jesus loves us and the Father is, you know, the, the judge, the stoic judge. And Jesus has to convince the Father. This is not taught in, this is just a kind of a popular view. Jesus has to convince the Father to love us, and he's pleading uh, on our behalf to the Father. And it's almost as if he's trying to convince the Father to do something he doesn't want to do. Um, and yet, First John says, Oh, what love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be sons of God, and so we are. And so any accounting must be done within the context of 
this is the God who has loved you first. Uh, and I think um, in light of that, that we will see the greatness of God's love for us. Christians will see that God's love and God's grace is actually surpassing, uh, su- surpassing what we could have imagined. And so if I were to kind of flip that TV screen, I would say instead of it, and I'm not saying this is actually what happens, yeah. <laughs> but to give it kind of a, a metaphorical bow, wrap a metaphorical bow on it. If your sins are being showed, you will be delighting in God that he has loved you in the presence of continual failings. That he's been, and you will, you will just be floored. He was better than I imagined. He was more gracious than I could imagine. Um, but yeah, this idea that we'll be shamed and then entered into rest, I don't think that matches well with the fact that we are forgiven and loved in Jesus Christ. And as it relates to our bodies, Gary, what, um, what might the final resurrection, what does that look like when our bodies are, or I guess our new resurrected bodies are enmeshed, reunited with our, um, with the disembodied souls from the intermediary state? First of all, the, I would say it's the greatest existence in the world, the greatest existence possible. Um, to quote Anselm out of context, it's the best of, well, I'm sorry, not Anselm. To, to quote Leibniz out of context, it's the best of all possible worlds. Leibniz thought it was this world. That's the world where it would be the greatest of all possible worlds because we would be fully embodied, fully conscious, I think remembering our past, and we'd be entering our, as Matthew 25 says, entering your Father's glory. Uh, I think we would be... I I think the world is open. The Bible doesn't say a lot about what we're going to do, but I think the Bible does say we will know each other. The Bible says we'll be with the Lord. The Bible says we'll be in the presence of the Father. Uh, Scripture says, I believe Scripture teaches very clearly that we will continue to grow. We don't get zapped with omniscience or something like that. Uh, We will continue to grow because we're human beings. We can only grow progressively and uh, point by point. So I think there's learning. There's exploring God's creation. By the way, just one quick note, I'll end with this one. In the Septuagint of the Old Testament, the Eden, Garden of Eden, is called paradise. In Revelation chapter 2, describing what Christians had to look forward to, it's called paradiso, paradise. And so a lot of commentators have said the final view of heaven will not be very much different than what Jewish believers describe as what the Garden of Eden should have been. Hmm. And that just makes you go, oh, that sounds fantastic. You know, and that's just <laughs> the beginning of it all. So. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. I obviously, I, we have more questions and we could talk about this a lot more, but we are out of time. And I just want to thank you, Mikkel and Daniel and Gary so much for the time you have spent with us and um, just the intellectual um, weight that you have brought to this conversation. And I just really enjoyed chatting with you all and hopefully helping our listeners, you know, just think through what it is that happens when we die and what scripture has to say that about that and what um, Christians who have come before and thought deeply about these things have come to conclusions about as well. So again, we thank you so much for your time and um, we thank you for those of you who are listening and we hope that you will uh, join us next week as we discuss issues of God and culture. 
thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. Thank you.